0: Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to a multi-award-winning television producer turned top ten best-selling author who is behind shows such as This Life, Teachers, and 20 Things to Do Before You're 30. Her first book... Getting Rid of Matthew was published in 2007 and was a Sunday Times bestseller, something it has in common with every book she's published since, including Got You Back, Foursome, The Ugly Sister, Queen Bee and Worst Idea Ever. Her latest novel, Just Got Real, is set in the murky world of online dating and tells the story of Joni, whose nervous first-time online search for love turns into a tale of revenge after discovering duplicity. The book has been variously described as unputdownable, always a good compliment, and a roller coaster of revenge, as well as laugh out loud funny. And I'm so delighted to be talking to Jane Fallon today. Hello, Jane. Hello. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much. How much do you think about the Sunday Times bestseller, considering every single one has gone into that top 10? Does it become a kind of burden?
1: that's the problem you think about it more and more at the beginning it never even occurred to me that it might happen and I can still remember actually where I was when I got the phone call um from my publishers to say that getting rid of Matthew had gone into the top 10 in on its first week and I was in a car with someone I didn't really know she was someone that was doing some work on our house for us and she was giving me a lift somewhere so I couldn't go oh, I just had to kind of go oh okay 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 and it was absolutely because I hadn't considered it for a second, so it was surreal. And But then obviously every time after that you start thinking, is this going to be the one that's not going to do it? So it, I'll be honest, it is a pressure, yeah. But, but obviously it doesn't affect your writing. Like, There's nothing I would do differently in the hope that it would guarantee a top 10 because you just can't.
0: But then I guess, do you strike on a formula that that you know works or how are you, I guess, taking your audience with you to different areas, different places, without also as well, I guess, if there is at all, a fear that you may alienate them.
1: Yeah, you you kind of want to stay in your wheelhouse, really, because I might have a brilliant idea for a completely different genre, but I think it would alienate people. Um, there was a thing when getting, getting Rid of Matthew first came out, someone called it chick noir, which I really liked, because obviously as a female writer, you get the chick lit, even if you're not writing about Relationships. Do you, are you
0: comfortable with that?
1: Well, it hasn't got a K on the end, so I kind of let it off. If <laughs> You can kind of read it as chic, chic noir. <laughs> I mean, no, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> like no one's saying all oh, men's books are lad, whatever. So it's a bit infantilizing, But I liked the fact that I got my own little label that wasn't Chiclet because, you know, I, I've seen it with it. all other women writers that I know. They all get called Chiclet if there's any kind of a relationship, even if it's just two friends doing something together. So I thought, okay, well, that's kind of my thing. My thing is Chick Noir. So I've sort of clung on to that so that I've got a thing, but it's a thing that I feel is my own unique little USP. And similarly with the revenge thing, more and more, you know, I I started a few books ago, I remember there was a review that said, or the Queen of Revenge, and I thought, oh, I like that. That's that's my thing. Um, So I think as long as you're happy that you can make each book as individual, I think it's a bit like saying every thriller has a murder in it. Most of my books have revenge in them. It's my thing. It's what I do. But hopefully they're all very different.
0: Okay. So what is it about your own nature, your own personality that draws you towards revenge?
1: I don't know. I think it's one of those feelings that's universal, the desire for it. But I also think it's a dreadful mistake. I don't think it's anything. You know, I've often fantasized in my head about what I would do to someone that's wronged me. I mean, what I can do now is I can put a nasty version of them in a book and it's a joy. But, you know, you think about it, but it's not a good – it's a terrible thing. It backfires on everybody, I think, that tries it. And it turns you into the kind of person I would never want to be. But I'm sort of fascinated by what would happen if we act on one of those really dark feelings that we have. What would that do to you as a person? How far would you go? I just find it an endlessly sort of fascinating subject, really.
0: Do you need to be quite in control of everything? Yeah. Or – Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because revenge can spiral and does, right? Yeah. Because things have unforeseen circumstances that come from these things. And that's chaos.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because I think in people's heads, they think, oh, you know, I'll just do this one thing. I'll write this nasty comment about her on Twitter. And that you know, that will teach her but then you get sucked in. I think either you do it once and you think, oh, that was good. I'll do it again. Or they fight back. And then you think, well, I've got to go harder. It always escalates. It's not a healthy way to be at all. I don't think. Um, And I am a massive control freak about most things, but I also know myself well enough that I know that it, uh, I just know it would all go horribly wrong. If I ever tried to take revenge on someone, it, it would be so much worse for me than it ever would be for them. So I kind of get it out of my system by writing about it.
0: And being a producer, presumably that is controlling all aspects of what is happening around you. I guess then there's not that much difference being an author. But I often speak to authors, Jane, who talk to me about it taking on a life of its own, even though you are ultimately in control of it. It takes you to directions you never thought you would go. Yeah,
1: that's definitely true. And that's one of the joys, actually, I find, of writing a first draft because writing a first draft as i'm pretty sure you know it is it's hard it's hard and it's painful and sure. you never quite know if you've made the right decisions but actually what's lovely about it is it the characters do sort of start to come alive in your head and they do start to drive how the story is going to go and you have to be happy to move away from your original plan i think you have to go with where the story is kind of taking you where it logically will go next and i that's what for me is one of the most exciting things is finding out the ways the story can Completely change track from what you're imagining because of what you've already written. Does it get more difficult? Uh, yes and no. It's to a large extent it gets easier in that I know that I can do it now. I know I can pull it off. I know. I always say this, but it's so true. I know that at a certain point in the book, approximately forty thousand to sixty thousand words. I'll have a nervous breakdown and throw things around and cry a lot and say, this is rubbish. And I want to put it all in the bin. But now I know that's going to happen. And every time all my friends say to me, you know, you do this every time. And I'm like, but this time it's real. But in my head now, I know it's not, I know I can get through it. I know it's not the end of the world if I can't get through it. And I have to throw all that away and start something else. I know I can practically do it. It gets harder, I think in the expectations become bigger You know, you don't want to keep repeating yourself. I'm now, I'm writing quite quickly now. I'm writing, and at the beginning, I was very kind of, oh, yeah, I'll knock out another one in a year and a half. But the last sort of eight books, I've been writing a book a year. And although that really suits me, it also puts a lot of pressure on you to come up with an original idea. So that side of it gets a bit harder. But generally, I would say it does kind of get easier because it's the devil you know, you know.
0: Recently, I, I heard um, someone talking about the fashion designer Virgil Abloh and described that he had a zero attachment to ideas. Therefore, once it wasn't working, he could just drop it without feeling any remorse or anything. Just, what's your attachment like to ideas?
1: I'd love to have that one. That sounds great and really healthy, actually. (laughs) I don't get really attached, but I do get a bit attached. And you you mostly get attached, I think, because you're thinking, my brain has put all this work in already. Can I really throw that away? But actually, I learned on my second book, Got You Back, I wrote um, 30,000 words, which is like a third nearly of the book. And then I realized it really wasn't working. And I panicked. And I thought, I can't, it's not going to work. I've got to start a new book. So I junked what I'd written. It's the only time I've ever done it. But then when I came to write my next book, I got that out of the bin. And I had time in, you know, and my, I was relaxed enough to rethink it, reformat the, the idea. And that became my third book. So at that point, I realized that actually nothing's ever wasted. If you, an idea is not working and you junk it, you can revisit it later on and come at it from a different angle. And So I've got much better at being not too attached. You know, no idea is ever wasted. Even if you throw it away, you might well, just even if you just revive one tiny, tiny element of it later on, then it's all been worthwhile.
0: So that that 40,000 words juncture, right, you feel that coming. You know that's coming. There's no way around it. Even this deep into it, how successful you've been, all of the bestsellers that you've had, you'll still feel it. It'll still happen.
1: Yeah, I can feel it. There's a tension in the house. We're all thinking it's coming. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird because the middle section of a book is very unwieldy. It's, you know, you have your setup, you've got your your setup of your idea. You, you're very engaged with that. It's very exciting. You're excited about what you're writing. And then obviously later on, there'll be a whole kind of denouement of whatever sort. But you've got to keep people entertained through that big middle section. And it suddenly can seem overwhelming. Um, and I know with me where my writing works is with a lot of plot um and a lot of twists and turns and all that kind of thing, so I need to feel that I can come up with stuff like that and if i'm it's not flowing at that point, then I start to, that's when I start to panic. I know it's always gonna happen that's the section that if you're if it's not gonna work, it's gonna be really obvious that the book's not working because it's gonna feel like a big meander through
0: nothing for you know thirty thousand odd words. do you? ever attempt to try and understand something about men through your work?
1: Uh, I do. I mean, I my main characters are always women because I feel like I've got a better natural understanding of women. You know, most of my close friends are women and I'm one of four sisters and all that kind of. Obviously, I am a woman. And uh, so I feel like I can better access that. But no, I absolutely do. And I always, I always try to... Any ca- any characters in my books that seem irredeemable, I always try to redeem them a bit. So I, always, I do that with my male characters as well. I don't want to be, you know, all men are bastards or all men are, you know, cheaters or whatever. I do like to hope that I've given them some kind of roundedness and, you know, a bit more than that. Whether or not it's made me understand them more in real life, I don't know,
0: really. Then for a man reading Just Got Real, for instance... Is it in your mind what a man could learn about women or is that too broad a brushstroke? And actually you'll learn about Joni, you'll learn about the other characters in there.
1: Yeah, I think that I would, if I thought about that, I'd start overthinking it, I think is the truth. I think my job is just to tell the story I want to tell and try and bring those characters to life in a way that I feel that they're real and also I feel that they're, it's very important to me that I feel my characters are people that, I want to spend time with even if I don't like them I want to spend time with them to see what's happening with them so that's the major concern with me and then I think people will either relate to them or they won't but I think you just have to try and make them as three-dimensional as you can
0: if you Jane were to imagine yourself single in this world that we now inhabit what are the emotions that come to mind utter terror I mean utter terror just horrendous.
1: I don't. I mean, I say that, but also, I, there's a big part of me that thinks, with apps based on no evidence whatsoever, I'd be fine. I'd just be on my own, and I'd be fine because I'm very self-contained. I love my own company. I love being on my own. So I'm like, yeah, I'd be fine. I just never speak to another person again. It'd be all right. Um, I. It's a different world. I mean, on, the online dating thing is. I find it both fascinating and terrifying. And I've, which you know, obviously just got real. My latest book is all set around online dating, and um, I have several friends who've been doing it. And I can't get enough of their stories. I'm just absolutely fascinated by how do you ever know? You know, I've watched enough episodes of Catfish. I know everyone's lying. How do you ever know? And how do you even know that you've spent, I don't know, three, four, five, six months talking to this person? You've talked to them on the phone. You know, everything. You've made each other laugh. They sound like the perfect person for you. Everything they say is great. But you're going to meet them face to face and maybe you just won't have that. Physical attraction, you know, there, there won't be that sort of um, the pheromones won't be there. You just won't feel it. So now suddenly you've got a new best friend, which is great, but you haven't got a partner because you just can't know that. I think until you're in the same room with someone, it just seems like such a
0: waste of time. How much do you admire your friends who are are going out there, and how how much do you share your fears? The terror that you no, feel with them or is no, that because
1: that's not very supportive, is <laughs> no, it? I do. Let's be no, I do. But also they I mean they all they they know that I want to hear all the ridiculousness, so they tell me the ridiculous stories. No, I'm I'm I very much admire them. And you know, they're all kind of my age. They're older. They're people that have come out of long relationships, and it's an incredibly exposing time. You know, it's a weird time to be a woman anyway, when you're crashing through the menopause like an insane rhinoceros. Um And so I think they're incredibly brave, but also I do, I get scared for them. I get nervous and I do constantly lecture them about, you know, if they tell me they're going to meet someone, I'm like, just make sure you tell someone where you are. Give someone your number. Don't be on your own with them. And I've got one friend who's, she's older than me, actually. She's incredible. She's like my hero. She's amazing. She's just so trusting and it just frightens the life out of me because I don't know how you know who these people are. I'm just so glad I don't have to be a part of it. You know, from from being an outsider, it, it really is the most fascinating thing. And it is a bit like a spectator sport. Um, obviously, this is people's lives I'm talking about. But, you know, I think there is for every person that's uh, having a bad experience that's been harmful to them, which obviously there are quite a few people that that's happened to. There are also some hilariously ridiculous experiences. And that, I, that's what I find the joy in, you know, hearing those strange stories about things that have gone on you know like my friend my friend who I was saying who is way too trusting she was talking to someone and they'd got to the phone stage and they've been talking quite a lot and then at the end of one conversation he let slip to her that he after every conversation with all it, all of the many women that he was talking to he marks them out of 10 marks the conversation out of 10 and he keeps a little notebook and he tops up every week he tops up each of their conversations and then he'll strike off the one that's not pulling their weight I mean, can you imagine? She'd been talking to this guy for months and thinking he was really nice and she had no idea this insanity was going on. So obviously that was the last time she spoke to him.
0: Do do your friends ever have to say to you, Jane, can we just have a chat without me feeling like you're researching for another book?
1: (laughs) I think they all do get a bit worried. But to be fair, a lot of it's their fault because they don't want to now tell me anything about what's happening with them, obviously because I'm I'm noting it all down in my head. So they save up all their stories of what's happening to other friends of theirs. So when I see any of them, they're like, you will never guess what my friend is going through. So they're quite happy, I think, to be feeding me nonsense.
0: Um, and also as well, relationships, it seems like you'll never, ever run out of things to talk about or to yeah. write about.
1: Yeah, it's true. And I am really fascinated by the way people who supposedly are in love with each other, treat each other. You know, this person who should be your number one in the world, assuming you haven't got children, but they're your number one person in the world. Surely the point is that you've got each other's backs, that you support each other, that, you know, you're. when you talk to your friends, you're not slagging them off or whatever. And I, it, I'm fascinated by the awful things that people do to each other when they're in a relationship, the horrible way they talk about each other, the horrible way they treat each other. It's just... It's beyond me, really. So I love all. Of, I love getting my hands in that kind of mess. Uh,
0: what is your favorite aspect of writing? Is it narrative? Is it the creation of the characters? Is it the ending? What is it that you love most?
1: Mm. Well, I I really enjoy the beginning, actually. When everything's up in the air, when you know, little you're writing and a little thing pops in, and you think, "Oh, yeah, that would be good for her if she did." Liked this, or did this it's a bit like Joni and Just Got Real and the working out and the gym? Because I'm quite obsessed with the gym and working out myself. And I suddenly thought of that as a kind of character thing for her this sort of obsession, but it's almost replaced a lot of other stuff in her life. It's replaced her, you know, going out and having a social life, really. And I just thought, oh no, that's a really nice thing. So I love that. I love that beginning stage of, you know, writing the first sort of 10,000 words. And then, actually, like a bit of an old sado who used to be a script tester, I love the editing process. I love when I finish the first draft; I've got an actual thing that I can slice up and move around and rewrite. And I don't know, it sort of relaxes my brain, I think, because I'm not panicking, thinking, "Oh my God, what am I writing? What am I?" I've just, I've just like, I've got this thing, and I've got to make it work. And I love that. I can be, I'm good at being really brutal in the edit, because. I think you have to be. And I think that's because I I did that as a job for so long that I realised that it's a really positive thing. So, yeah, I love that kind of going at it with a butcher's knife.
0: Do you attack the first draft or is it a a sense of overcoming a fear and then eventually you'll get there? Or do you just like you're raring to go?
1: No, it kind of is the overcoming a fear thing, I think. I'm excited about it and I am raring to go. And like I say, I enjoy that first bit in the beginning, but it is nerve-wracking, it is nerve-wracking. And you're always thinking, have I made the right decision? You know, I have a thing that with with my plots now, when I get to a turning point, I like to draw a little road map. And so something will happen to one of the characters and I draw a little map of what could all the possible outcomes of this happening be. It's a bit like inside of the lungs and then you know, you draw, if I if went off on that road, if this happened, then what are all the possibilities that could happen next? And then you go off again, like a tree, what could happen next? And I find that really helpful. So you've explored every single possibility of every plot twist, because that helps me, I think. One, you might come up with a really good idea that you haven't come up with already, but also it helps me to know that the one I'm choosing is right, because I know where it can then go.
0: Do you have to rein yourself in? your the wild imagination if you're looking at all those options or is there part of you the mischievous part of you which i'm sure is quite a wide streak of mischievous is that yeah let's see how far i can go out on this out on a limb
1: to an extent but i my the most important thing for me is do i really believe this would happen so i'm very big on trying to keep it real also because some of my Some of the situations in mine, if you just take a one-liner, you think, well, that that sounds quite broad, you know, uh, getting rid of Matthew, a woman, uh, her love leaves his wife, turns up on her doorstep, says, here I am, just at the point she decides she doesn't want him anymore. So in trying to get them together, she becomes his wife's best friend without the wife knowing who she is. Now that sounds like kind of crazy. So you have to work really hard to make sure every bit of that is believable. So believability to me is the real thing. So I don't really get, caught up in going off in crazy
0: plot directions. But that's because real life is as mad as that, right? There's little or nothing you could create that wasn't as mad as, as you point out, relationships and what people do to each other.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And then I think what you have to do, is, though, is ground it in reality. Yes. So you can have a crazy thing. It's a bit like, for me, anyway, I have this real thing about coincidences. I think you can kick off a book with a coincidence because you're looking at what might happen if that coincidence happens. But then it steps outside reality for me if then a plot just in the middle is a coincidence. I think you have to work hard to believe that thing would happen. Does that make sense? Yes. You've got to keep it, you know, you've got to keep it real. You can't just have, oh, and then she happened to, you know, she sat down on the plane and sitting next to her was her brother. That she'd never met or something it's just too ridiculous whereas if that was the kickoff point to a story you'd think okay that's a bit weird but I wonder where this story's going to go and as long as everything else was real afterwards it would be all right but the readers invest so much in your plot it's cheating them to suddenly go oh and you know it was all a dream or she'd been in the shower or you know yeah, one of those kind yeah,
0: of yeah. um is the plot largely forward motion or reverse engineering
1: that's interesting. With me, it's forward motion generally. I've usually got a vague idea of where I want to end up in the vague terms of emotions generally, where I want to leave the main character emotionally. But I'm never working towards an end game. I like to plot it forward and, and think about what could happen if I did these things. And I think also you have, or I certainly have to be prepared to, Whatever ending I've thought I'm going to have, I've got to be prepared to ditch that anyway. When I'm halfway through the book, I nearly always realise that whatever ending I kind of thought I had in my head, that's probably not going to work. I think if you've got like a huge ending and that's what where you want to be, then I think the reverse thing works for you. With me, it's more about digging into my characters, certainly on the first draft, digging into my characters emotionally, finding what I can do with them. Pulling them apart in every direction I can find and then seeing what happens. So it makes sense for me to go forwards, I think.
0: What is it that takes you out of your comfort zone?
1: Like I tend, for example, I'm really uncomfortable, especially now I have some author friends. I'm really uncomfortable reading sex in books. makes me really uncomfortable. One, I get caught up in the choreography. I'm thinking, well, you just said his arm was over there, so how the hell is his left leg around there? It's like just impossible. But also I start thinking about the writer and thinking, well, she thinks this is like, well, it says a lot about her. And I'm as uncomfortable writing sex, so I just don't do it. Do you know what I mean? I'll say they had sex, but I'm not going to get into that because it just makes me—it makes me cringe. So I guess I just avoid what I, <laughs> what makes me uncomfortable. I, I've never read Fifty Shades of Grey.
0: Just the thought of it makes me break out in a sweat of cringe. <laughs> what? Well, why? Why do you think you have such an aversion to it? Is you just think that it's just very difficult to get right?
1: It's difficult to get right. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. It's difficult to get right. I mean, I'm sure there are a million examples of where it's been amazing and it's really enhanced the story and all that kind of thing. But, but yeah, it's difficult to get right and it's not something I feel comfortable with. It doesn't sound like me if I'm writing. And also because my um, tendency is always to look for the joke in everything. And so if I ever did, it would be like people would be falling off tables and it would just be ridiculous.
0: <laughs> interviewing so many musicians as I do and you you know you might be interviewing them on their fifth or sixth album and they were a very different person and listening to that album reminds them of of almost a different version of themselves if you were to pick up and read getting rid of Matthew today what version of Jane Fallon do you think you would see in that book
1: yeah I mean it's a hard one I haven't reread it for so long but I think I mean, I'm sure if I wrote it now, I would write it very differently because it was 15 years ago. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'd probably see a slightly more ballsy version of myself than I am now. I think. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh,
0: Surely the success makes you even ballsier, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> no, I don't know that it does. I don't know that it does. I think then, because then I was I was right in the middle of my TV career. Well, I was just leaving my TV career to write it. But obviously, you've got to be quite kind of, stroppy is the wrong word, although I probably was. Um, but, you know, you've got to be quite kind of forceful in your job. And um, so I, that, that was the side of me that existed then, was this person I was really confident about my work. I was really like, I wouldn't take any nonsense from people. and And, you know, I was very kind of straightforward and, and all that kind of thing. And I think that's the version that kind of wrote Getting Rid of Matthew. And I think you can kind of tell, I can tell that I'm not quite that
0: person anymore. For sure, for sure. Um, We asked you, Jane, uh, as we are prone to do here on the Penguin podcast, to bring a few things to talk to us about. Um, And we started off with something that changed you. And it was a job ad. Tell me about this ad for a job.
1: Yeah, I've still got it somewhere in a notebook upstairs, cut out of the paper. Um, so when I left university, I had no idea what I wanted to do, like literally none. The writing thing was was the ridiculous, you know, like, like you might think in the back of your head, you want to be a footballer or a ballerina or something? It was something that wasn't achievable. So I'd sort of parked that, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew that what I didn't want to do is get on to the wrong ladder and then go off and be tied in a direction for the rest of my life doing something I hated. So when they did all those, you know, those they used to do those interviews at universities where big companies would come and everyone would go and they'd interview for the entry level jobs and stuff. I just avoided all of that because I was terrified I would get a job that then I'd be stuck in some career before I'd even worked out in my own head what I wanted to do. So basically I left university and I did loads of kind of random jobs. You know, I supported myself. Okay, I was on the dole occasionally, but, but I did loads of jobs and stuff and I tried to work out what I wanted to do with my life. And my dad, bless him, who was like really, really, really hardworking. He just couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear the fact that I hadn't got myself a career and that I hadn't worked out what I wanted to do. And so he would cut out adverts from the paper and just send them to me. And sometimes I'd apply for them. Sometimes I'd ignore them. I just, whatever. And he sent me this one. um, And I, I remember it so clearly. It said, Girl Friday. Because it was indeed the 80s, and you could say things like that in the imagine the horror. Girl Friday. Girl Friday wanted for theatrical and literary agency. And uh I thought, oh, you know, it was it was a kind of easy tube ride. So I thought, well, I might as well apply. So I applied and I got an interview. And uh I walked in, and it was just one of these kind of attic-y agents' offices just off Piccadilly Circus. And it was up these little stairs, and there were tiny offices and there were posters of theatre productions all over the walls and there were piles of scripts and there were headshots of actors and I walked and I just thought I love this place I just love this place I was looking at the scripts I was practically salivating I just love it and um I didn't get the job uh and I was devastated I realized I was devastated and I thought there's this world out there that I never even considered but this is exactly the kind of I didn't even know what the options were really so I started trying to look into it and then a couple of months later, it was Christmas Eve, I got a phone call and it was the people from the agency and they said, oh, have you got a job yet? And I said, no. And they said, oh, well, the person that we took on didn't work out. So we wondered if you wanted to start in January. So suddenly I did have the job. Um, and so that was, I was 23 and that was the, that was my entry into TV, you know, that whole world basically. Like it took me a few years there to work out that I didn't want to be an agent. I wanted to work with scripts and I wanted to work in TV and all that kind of stuff. But it opened every door to me open that initial door that then opens every other door so that ad that my dad sent me is really kind of precious to me um
0: now I love this object something that you should have thrown away I mean Jane okay it's in your fridge it's in your fridge tell us what it is that's in your fridge that you probably (laughs) should have thrown away by now it's a plastic antelope yeah of course it is yeah. of course it
1: is <laughs> so and, uh, it's in our fridge in just in there and uh it's been in i think now it's been in eight at least eight fridges that we had so um basically it i mean it's 35 years ago easily and we were sort of, we sort of befriended this old man in the local pub we were really really had no money at all and uh we kind of worked out it was cheaper to sit in the pub and you know nurse one pint all night than try and put the heating on so we would do that and there was this Man called Jan, who was this old Polish guy. And he would always sit there on his own, looking a bit sad. And so naturally, we just sort of started talking to him. So we would all sit there, nursing our one drink all night, and we started talking to each other. And he was this really sweet man, but he was a bit of a hoarder. And he loved a bargain more than anything in the world. Loved a bargain. I remember him telling us that he'd, we lived in Bloomsbury, he'd gone all the way to Wimbledon to a market because they had eight tea towels for 20p. And so it was worth going all the way to Wimbledon. He gave us a tea towel. I was thrilled. Like He'd gone all the way to Wimbledon for that. And he, he, we went to his flat once and it was like, I mean, it was just extraordinary the amount of just stuff he had in there. And he had things like, bless him. He had things like, um, you know, when you buy a photo frame and there's a photo in it and it sort of says, you know, so photo a random person. He had those on the wall. We were like, oh, who's that? He said, uh, oh, that's, a, I don't know. It just came with a frame. Like, all right. Anyway, he was a really sweet old guy. Ricky used to play chess with him and stuff. And one day he said to us, I've got a present for you. I've got something. I think you're really going to like it. So we were like, oh, okay, very nice of you. And he produced this plastic antelope. And God love it. It must have been about 20 years old then. It's a little, I mean, it's the ugliest little thing you've ever seen. It's literally a plastic antelope. Ugliest thing in the world. And so obviously we pretended we were thrilled. <laughs> he just thought we'd like it. He thought we'd like it as an ornament. We, and... Um, we got home, we were like, what are we going to do with it? Because what if he ever comes around? We can't throw it away. What if he ever comes around? He's going to want to see the precious antelope on the mantelpiece, but I can't live looking at that thing because it's horrific. So I just shoved it in the fridge. I thought I'll just put it somewhere funny where I'll remember where it is. Anyway,
0: 35 years later, it's still in our fridge. I mean, there are so many questions. Um, (laughs) uh, The obvious one is it's not going to go off. So why does it need to be in a refrigerator (laughs) is the Obvious first question.
1: Well, because that's where it's lived for the last 35 years. So it's, that's its, you know, happy place, I guess. I don't, I I feel so bad throwing it out. When we moved last, I was like, make sure you take the antelope out of the fridge
0: because it would be terrible to leave it behind now. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, A book that you cherish uh, and it involves Tim and Charlotte. Yeah. So that was the first book that I can
1: remember being given. It's a book called Tim and Charlotte by Edward. I think his name is pronounced. And he wrote several books about Tim and his friend Ginger. And I think I was given it when I was about three. And I was—I just remember being obsessed with it. And apparently I would walk around with it in my hand following either my mum or more likely one of my older sisters because my mum was probably at work, just saying, read, 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 like all the time. And they would read it to me and then I'd start off straight off again. <laughs> read, read, read. And I, it just transported me. It was this whole world about... Tim and his friend Ginger, they lived by the sea and they found this girl washed up one day on the rocks, little girl. They're all about eight, I guess. And uh, she didn't know who she was. So they took her home and they all became really good friends and everything. And then suddenly one day after weeks, a woman turned up, an old woman turned up and it was her great aunt and she'd come to reclaim her. So the girl had fallen in the sea and lost her memory and the great aunt came to reclaim her and... She took her off and and you found out that she lived this really sad, sort of lonely, dry life. And her great aunt didn't want her to keep in touch with Tim and Ginger because they were like, weren't posh boys and all that kind of thing. And in the end, Charlotte gets really sick and she goes to the doctor and the doctor prescribes that her great aunt has to let her go back and play with them. So it has a happy ending. Anyway, I just, it just lit my love of reading it just completely did I think from that moment onwards I was never without my head in a book whether or not I was able to actually read it for myself or not and i still got that copy um and yeah so I treasure
0: it in the fridge
1: uh no no that's a thought I could I could keep it in the fridge
0: (laughs) I keep all everything Everything. I love in the fridge everything Uh, um uh something that reminds you of home. And um, something, I think, from a shop in, like, 1963.
1: Yeah. So, 1963, we moved out of London. I was, like, little, two, three. And uh, we took over this little newsagent shop in Buckinghamshire. And um, they had one of those old tills. You know those tills that they're sort of a square wooden box and you lift up the lid and you sort of feed in some paper and you handwrite a receipt on it and there's a drawer that comes out with the money and it dings? And that was there. And uh, after a couple of years, my mum and dad invested in a new till, like a more fancy till. And I, I just love that thing. And so I kept it and I've still got it. And it's moved everywhere with me. And I just put random things in it. And it just, there's something about it that just, it just, you know, if you, have we didn't move a lot, but we moved a few times when I was little. And you've always got one place that you really think is home, if you've lived in several places. And that's the place that always feels like home to me. I think because I was there from like two, three to sort of 12 you know, there's that very formative period. So whenever I, whenever someone says where's home, that's what I always think of. Um, so yeah. Where I, is, where is the till? Where is it, the till up, now? <laughs> it's in the fridge. Uh, it's upstairs in my office. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my office and it's got like random bits and pieces in it. But, um, but I just I love it. And I remember my dad tried to throw it away once. They moved. My parents moved when I was 18. I went to America for three months with my friend in the holidays and did that on 19, maybe, uh, you know, did that thing where you get a work permit for three months and you travel around America. And when I came back, my parents had moved and, uh, it was before mobile phones or anything. So I only knew when they put me up at the airport and they were like, okay, we live in Brighton now. And apparently my dad had been going because he couldn't stand anything that he thought was, was clutter. He had been going to throw it away, but thankfully my mum saved it. He
0: just thought it's a terrible old bit of old tat, but I'm glad she saved it. Cause I love it. Well, we can definitely see who you take after in that respect, uh, out of your mum and your dad, can't we? <laughs> with a yeah. with a plastic yeah. antelope in your fridge, uh, says a lot. Um, something you would hate to lose, and um, and it's related to all of these yes. things I've got on my desk, which is lots and lots yeah, of notepairs. notebooks.
1: I have so many notebooks. I never really look through them. I mean, I have pile, like literally piles and piles and piles, and some of them are only have a a few pages written in or whatever. But for some reason with ideas, I I always want to hand write them. I don't really put ideas onto my computer. It's like when I'm working out the idea of a book, I always do that by hand and I do it in notebooks. So my notebooks are full of one-liner ideas for books that have never happened. They're full of versions of the books that have happened. The first, you know, not the whole book, but the idea. Quite a lot of first lines of books that I like that make me think, oh, I'm sure I can make an interesting story out of that first line. Um, And just random thoughts that I think might be useful at some point. So I've got years of them going back and I I almost never look at them. But every now and again, if I'm really stuck, I'll just flick through one. And sometimes you see the odd sentence and you think, oh, yeah, that's quite good. Quite often if I've got to write a short story for something, I'll do that. I'll flick through and and see if there's anything that jumps out at me.
0: And this, this is years and years of ideas. Years
1: and years, yeah. I'd say going back at least to when I first started writing novels. So probably going back 15 years, yeah. So big piles of stuff.
0: That that's amazing, and yet you'll start a new notebook without even finishing the previous one.
1: Yeah, I do. I wish I didn't, but I do sometimes.
0: I love stationery. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm married to a woman who loves stationery. She's obsessed with pens. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. Why is it that you make these notes pen to paper rather than putting them all on a file on a laptop somewhere?
1: Yeah, I don't know because I would never start writing the actual book in a notebook. But the idea I have to, there's something for me about the connection with my brain and the words as I'm writing them that helps me to formulate an idea, which somehow the sort of coldness of tapping on a computer doesn't.
0: It's amazing. Um this has been such a great conversation, Jay. Not the first conversation you and I've had for it has to be said, but this has been just so interesting. I could talk to you for hours, but I know that uh, someone has to come and polish the throne you're sitting on. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, hour. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's It's so good, Jane. Thank you so much. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: I'm so glad that you could hang out with us this evening our kickoff make sure the antelope's okay in the fridge and also thank you for listening wherever you are now if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out and finally if you want to find out more about this podcast or jane's enormous and successful body of work head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts i'm nihal arthur i'll see you next time